Um, today's scripture reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 1 to 14. What shall we then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a, re in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have, have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks, Winnie, for reading scripture for us. Uh, let's pray together again as we prepare our hearts to receive his word. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you have spoken. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, uh, give us eyes to see the glory of your Son, that our hearts would turn to him afresh, that we would find in him life and strength and hope and the grace to live lives that are pleasing to you. So Father, help us, we pray, strengthen us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, some of you may know uh, that I studied economics in university, so uh, truth is, I don't remember much of what I studied. But one thing I do remember, the one thing that I think has stuck with me all these years, is this concept of uh, moral hazard. You know, those of you who work in the finance industry, you, you, know, you probably know what I'm talking about. This idea of moral hazard. So what, what is moral hazard? This is really an idea that if I'm protected from any bad consequences, then I'm actually more likely to behave in a way that results in those consequences. So that's moral hazard. And you know, the, the problem of moral hazard pops up a lot, especially in the insurance business. Uh, let me give you an example. You know, assume, you know, imagine I'm, I'm going on holiday, and I'm going on holiday to a place that is mountainous, you know, lots of mountain roads. And you know mountain roads tend to be really, really rough, you know, not, not really paved. So what do I do? I go to the car rental company, and I take out full insurance. Right? I, I take out complete insurance, uh, that covers any damage, any damages to the car. Why do I do that? Because I'm gonna, I know that I'm going to drive on really, really rough mountain roads. So I want complete coverage so that I can do that without having to bear any consequences. 
of my actions. Right? There's a moral hazard problem there, right? Because I know I have insurance, therefore I can do whatever I want because I know the insurance will take care of it. Moral hazard. You know, it's like how we sign up for church camp late because we know that church camp will always remain, the registrations will always remain open. So what do we do? We sign up for it late because we know that the, extent, the deadline will always be extended again and again. Moral hazard. Does the, does the gospel create a moral hazard problem? Okay, it's a bit of an economics lesson, right? Does the gospel create a moral hazard problem? Right, think, think about it this way. You know, the gospel promises that whatever I do, right, you know, I, I'm a sinner, I've, I've, I've sinned against God, I've, I've rebelled against Him, I'm far from Him. You know, we've, we've heard about this from Romans 1 to 3, right? And, and the gospel tells me that in, in spite of who I am, in spite of what I've done, God forgives me, right? Uh, salvation doesn't come by the works that I have done, but salvation comes by what? By grace, right? Completely undeserved. Nothing that I can do to contribute to that salvation. You know, so the gospel begins to sound, wow, this sounds like a really good insurance policy, <laughs> right? It's like really, really good insurance, like complete coverage regardless of any actions or things that, I've do, that I do or have done. So it, the gospel tells us, you know, all, all, what, what, all that we need to be saved is to simply believe in Jesus, that He died on the cross for our sins, that He rose from the dead, and, and simply by believing in Him, we have complete forgiveness. We can be made right with God. We, we don't contribute anything to that at all. Wow. Talk about good insurance. No, in fact, Paul in chapter 5, verse 20 says these surprising words, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, if, if this is true, then why not sin more that grace may abound? Right? Paul, you know, you're right. Chapter 5, verse 20, you know, sin increased, grace, is, grace abounded all the more. Then, it seems like the logic is, then I should sin more, so that I get to enjoy more grace. I should do whatever I want so that I can take advantage of this insurance policy that I have because it, it promises complete coverage. So does the gospel give me this free pass to do whatever I want? Because after all, you know, God promises to bail me out right? regardless of how I live. Then why be good at all? Why be good at all? Does the gospel actually encourage sin? Right? I mean, these are weighty, weighty questions, right? Because you think about it, if, if the gospel encourages sin, then, then don't bother to believe the gospel because why would we believe in something that leads to sin? Right? So this is a very serious objection to the message of the gospel. Now, the story is told of a, a, a pastor who had this conversation with a man and his pastor asked the man, hey, how's your relationship with God? And the man says, oh, there's not much to tell. I like sinning, and God likes forgiving. We get along just fine. <laughs> so if, if God saves me just as I am, does this mean that I don't need to change at all? Right? Do I have a free pass to do whatever I want with my life now that God saved me? So let's think about this passage because this, these, these are the very questions that Paul is asking here in Romans 6, especially in 1 to 14. So there's three points to help us think about how Paul responds 
to these real objections and concerns to the gospel. Number one, we, we need to change. Verse one and two. You know, verse one really is the key question that Paul has to address, right? Look at verse one. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, that's, that's essentially what we've been uh, thinking about in, in the early part of this sermon. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What, what does it mean to continue in sin? To continue in sin means to live, uh, to have this continuous lifestyle. You know, the word continue there is in the present tense. Uh, this, to have this lifestyle of living without God. Uh, living with, maybe God is an afterthought at best in our life. Right? We, we kind of get on with life doing whatever we want, following our dreams, our plans, our desires, and, and God is, at best, pushed to the periphery of our life. I think that's what it means to continue in sin. So it's not like we are involved in a really serious sin, but, but rather I think this refers to a, a settled lifestyle of living without God, without thinking about God, without wondering about how we should follow Him, but we kind of push Him to the edges of our life. So Paul says, can we continue to live like that? Can we continue to live like that? With God at the fringe of our life at best. Paul says, by no means. By no means. You know, the, the word there is, is very strong. You know, it's like, Paul's like saying, no, 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 not at all. You know, definitely not. You know, I like the way, if you have an authorized version, I like the way the, the authorized version translates that, right? It says, God forbid. God forbid. God forbid that we should continue in sin, that grace may abound. So if we believe the gospel, if we have been saved by the superabundant grace of God, then, then we cannot go on living as though nothing has changed. Imagine that you've, you've just recovered from a life-threatening illness. Right? Maybe you've, you've had illness for a long time, that you've been in a physically perilous condition, and, and then you recover. You know, the treatment works, and, and you recover full health. And doctor comes to you and says, hey, this is really amazing that you've recovered. I think you should start watching your diet and exercise more. And what, what are you going to do? Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, of course. I'm, I'm going to, yes, doctor, you're right. I'm, this, is, this is amazing. I'm going to really watch my diet. I'm going to change my lifestyle. I'm, I'm going to watch what I eat. I'm going to watch, I'm going to try to exercise more and really try to get healthy and maintain my health. That's what it means, right? If, if we've been saved by the gospel from death, brought to life, now can we not change our lifestyle? Right? That, that's the point that, that Paul is making. So God graciously saves us just as we are, but you know, he, he loves us too much to leave us just as we are. That's how wonderful the gospel is. The gospel will transform us. So friends, we have to ask ourselves this very fundamental question. Are we claiming to be Christian while still living in unrepentant sin? Are we continuing in sin? Continuing to live a life where God is not at the centre, He's at the periphery, we don't really think about Him. Are we claiming to be Christian while continuing in sin? So we need to hear what Paul says in verse 2. You know, how can we still live in sin? How can we still do that? 
are we taking God's grace for granted? Now, these two scripture passages from other parts of scripture are good to meditate on. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows that he will also reap. And 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. What, what do we test ourselves with? We, we test ourselves by seeing, is, is there real change in my life? If, if I say I believe the gospel, then so what? Right? So what? Does my life show real change? Not, not perfection, but genuine change. Change does not save us, but change is a sign of genuine spiritual life. So if, if the gospel hasn't changed my life, then I, it's warranted that I ask myself if I have truly believed in Jesus. So we need to change. I think that's clear just looking at verses 1 and 2 of our text. So second point, so, so we understand we need to change, but the second point brings... Encouragement to us. It says we can change because we have been changed. Right? That, that's what Paul spends a lot of time speaking about in verses 2 to 10. So God is gracious. What, what He requires, He also enables and provides. Therefore, it is not legalistic or moralistic to insist on change because the very change that God requires of us is something that He empowers in us. And Paul will tell us how in verses 2 to 10. Verse 2 really is the main point of, of this whole passage. Right? We, this is the main point of Paul's reply. We have died to sin. We have died to sin. Verse 2. This is the reason why we cannot go on living in sin. So we must be clear about what died to sin means. Right? So, so listen, Paul doesn't mean that a Christian will experience sinless Perfection. So, so that's not what died to sin means. If, 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 if died to sin means sinless, perfect, sinless perfection, then, then Paul wouldn't have to exhort us in verses 12 to 13 to turn away from sin and to follow God. So, so Paul is not expecting sinless perfection. Indeed, a normal Christian life is not a perfect sinless life, but a normal Christian life is a life of continual repenting, turning away from sin, turning back to Jesus again and again and again and again. So die to sin also doesn't refer to a process of continually dying to sin. Right? So die to sin here doesn't refer to the process of sanctification, if you want a theological term. You notice the tense. What's the tense? It's past tense. Right? Died to sin. Not dying to sin. Died to sin. So, so basically what Paul is saying, that this is something that has happened to us. It's not something that we are doing for ourselves, but this is something that has happened to us already. We have died to sin. So what does die to sin mean? How do we die to sin in this way? You know, Paul, tells, Paul tells us that we died to sin through being baptized into Christ. Verse 3. So let me, let's, let's unpack that a bit more. Right? Because in, in the New Testament, baptism is a sign that shows that we have repented of our sins and have believed in Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. Baptism in the New Testament is very closely associated with 
conversion. Conversion. So baptism is a bit like a wedding ring, right? Uh, you know, the day I choose to use this illustration is the day I forget to wear my wedding ring. <laughs> Sorry, Claire. <laughs> so, you know, imagine I have a wedding ring on my finger, right? So, so the, wedding ring doesn't, the wedding ring doesn't make me married, right? I, I don't put on a ring and suddenly I'm married, no. The, the wedding ring is a sign that shows that I am one with Claire, that, that I'm married to her. Uh, so, so the wedding ring is, is a sign that my life has changed, right? That, that I am now spoken for, that I belong to someone. The wedding ring doesn't make me married. In the same way that baptism doesn't save us, but baptism is a sign that we belong to Jesus, right? That's why Paul says, you've been baptized into Christ. You've been converted. You belong to Him. And that's why you have died to sin. This is why we also baptize, right? This is why we baptize only believers. It's because of what Paul says here about baptism. It's a sign that someone has been converted. Someone has believed in Jesus and been changed. And this is the New Testament pattern. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then you will be baptized. The New Testament actually doesn't have this category of unbaptized believers. The New Testament assumes that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will be baptized out of obedience to Christ. And so to be baptized into Christ shows that we are united to Him. We belong to Him. We've been converted. And Paul says if, if you are united to Christ, baptized into Him, you will also be united with Him in His death. Right? This, this union with Christ. You've also been baptized into His death. Now, what does it mean to die with Christ? You know, think, think of our own lives. Right? You know, once we lived without God in the picture. Now, this was before we became Christian. How do we live? We, we live for ourselves, basically. We didn't trust in Him. We didn't trust in God. We didn't obey Him. We, we lived to fulfill our desires. Right? We, we, our lives were centered around us. We, we did whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted to do it, and however we wanted to do it. And, and the Bible calls this sin. Right? This, this self-centered, self-sufficient way of living is sin. Because we don't depend on God, we don't trust Him, we don't follow Him. So I may not have realized it then, but as, as a, as a non-Christian living in this way, I, I was actually not free, but my, my life was controlled by these sinful, selfish desires. Right? Because I was just living to fulfill my desires, wherever they led me. This is what it means to live in sin. And once all of us lived in this way, before Christ. Then God graciously intervened in our lives. He moved our hearts to turn away from sin and to turn to Jesus. And when God converts us, right, he, he, he unites us with His Son. Right? We're baptized into Christ. And we're also baptized into His death. We're united with Christ in His death as well. That's why in verse 6 of our text, Paul says, our old self was crucified with Christ. Who's that old self? Really, that, that old self is who I was without God. The old self was my former identity as a sinner and rebel against God, as someone who had no desire at all to follow God, to trust Him or to obey Him. So Paul says, when, when I'm united to Christ, this old identity 
who I was without Jesus, this old identity is nailed to the cross. This old identity is crucified together with Jesus. And you know, crucify is a very strong word, right? You know, crucify means to really, really kill. <laughs> you cannot have a half crucifixion where someone's kind of half dead. No, it, it's, it's a very strong word that, that signifies this complete death to the old self. The old self is dead. Dead. Dead together with Christ. So friends, when we think about conversion, true biblical conversion is not superficial. You know, sometimes we think about conversion you know, you know, in quite superficial ways. right? Yeah, you know, I just say a prayer, I walk the aisle, I raise my hand, I just say something and then suddenly, wow, I'm converted. Well, actually, no, not really. Right? Yes, it's true, we, we are converted by trusting in Jesus, by expressing faith in Him. But that is a profound that involves a profound change of life. It's not just something I say with my lips and then forget about, and there's no change in my life. No, true biblical conversion involves this profound change from death to life. This is, this is exactly what Paul is talking about here, about conversion. It's not superficial. It, it involves this radical change as God transforms us from sinner to saint. And Paul goes on to say that the body of sin is brought to nothing, so that we're no longer enslaved to sin. You know, verse 6 and 7. We've been set free from sin. You know, once we were bound by our sinful desires, we did whatever our desires told us to do, but now we're free, set free from those desires to live to sin. So to die to sin means that sin no longer rules, you know, that there's new management. We're no longer under sin as our boss, but sin is no longer our master. The, the power of sin over our lives has been broken. We've been set free. So we can change. In fact, we, we should change because God is the one who has changed us from the inside out. That's the amazing grace of God in conversion. He, he changes us from the inside out. So, so it's completely warranted to expect change in our lives because we now serve a new master. Uh, let, me, let me give us an illustration. Imagine there's a wicked dictator who rules over a country, right? This is really wicked king. He oppresses the people and he compels them to do whatever he wants. Right, so, so imagine life under this wicked dictator is not very nice. Then a good king appears. And then this good king comes and he, he defeats this dictator. He overthrows him. And now the good king becomes the ruler of this land. The dictator no longer has any power to get the people to do what he wants. Right? His, his rule is broken. The good king now rules. And now the people follow this king. So in, the same, in a similar way, this is how we have died to sin. Christ has conquered. And because Christ has conquered, the, the grip of sin over our hearts has been broken. We are free. Free to do whatever this new king, Jesus, wants us to do. We've been set free from sin. 
well, let me extend the illustration a bit. You know, but the, di but the, di the dictator flees with his forces. So what do they do? They, they run into the countryside. They, they continue to engage in guerrilla warfare. They, they continue to perpetrate terrorist attacks against the people. Now, they, they do this not in any hope of regaining power. No, they've never regained power. But they're still very troublesome. <laughs> right? they, they're still dangerous. They, they still want to make life miserable for the people through these guerrilla attacks and terrorist attacks. So in a similar way, sin has been banished, but, but sin is still there. We, we still live in a fallen world. We still deal with life in, in a world that is sinful, fallen against God. So although sin is no longer in control, sin continues to trouble us. Sin is like a terrorist in our lives. It's like a dangerous enemy that we must continually guard against and, and fight against even though it's no longer in control. But we, as you go on to read in Romans 6, you realize that we don't fight in our own strength. Paul says we're able to live a new life because Christ is risen from the dead. I think this is very appropriate that we look at this text a week after Easter. You know, sometimes, you, sometimes you wonder, you know, why, why, what's the big deal that Jesus has risen? How does his resurrection affect me? Paul actually tells us here in this text, not only are we united with Christ in His death, we're also united with Him in His resurrection. You know, listen to verses 4 and 5 and 8. Paul says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, you know, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly, you know, certainly, be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Right? Our, our new life is certain because of the resurrection of Christ. You know, just last week, uh, this architect, David Grizel, I think that's how you pronounce his name, you know, he, he wrote about the burning of, uh, the recent burning of the Notre Dame uh, in Paris. You know, the Notre Dame is about, what, 700 years old, if, if I'm right. This thing was completed in the 13th century. So, you know, a 700-year-old church kind of burning like that. You know, that's a very sobering sight. And, and, and David Grizel, he, he wrote this very thoughtful, you know, he wrote some insight about, about why we were so affected by the burning of that cathedral. And he says, but it's more than lost carpentry, isn't it? that we mourn. That we mourn that nothing lasts, not even a 700-year-old church. We mourn that nothing lasts, and we want something to last. I think that's how we feel about change in our lives as well. You know, we, our lives of, you know, we, we often want change, but sadly our experience is that the good change that we want to see happen in our lives, it doesn't last. Right? We, we break resolutions, we uh, renege on our promises, we uh, cheat on our diets, we, we, don't get, we don't get all the exercise we want to get. Right? The good that we do, we don't. The good that we want to do, we don't follow through. Right? And we, we, we feel that way about change. Right? We, we want to change, but our change, the change in our life doesn't seem to last. We want lasting change. We, we want to really be better 
better people. But sometimes, you know, we just end up with disappointment. In fact, sometimes we, some, some of us get a bit disillusioned. You know, we, we say, ah, yeah, I've, I've tried all that, doesn't work. You know, we, we agree with the words of the Bon Jovi song, right? The more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> so, how do we know that the change that Paul is speaking about in Romans 6 is not merely wishful thinking? How do we know that this kind of change actually lasts? Right? Is this just a pipe dream? You know, are we really able to change? Or is this just idealistic? Well, we know that this is not wishful thinking because why can we be assured of our new life? It's because it is anchored in Jesus' resurrection life. Friends, if, if Jesus is risen, we who are in him, we will also be risen. Right? That, that, there's, no, there's no failure on Jesus' part. Because he lives, we can be 100% certain that we too will have new life. I think that's, that's why Paul hammers this point. He says, we, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. He rose from the grave in total triumph. Jesus died to deal with our sin once and for all. And because he has conquered sin and death, we too will conquer sin and death. Just as the risen Christ lives to God, we too will live to God with the new life that Christ has given us. So our new life in Christ is a certainty. If, if we are united with Christ, if we trust in Him, we will have new life. And this new life will show itself even now, today, in our present life. That's why Paul says, how can we continue in sin? How can we continue in sin if Jesus has given us this new life? doesn't make sense. How can we continue to live to the old ways if Christ has made us new? Friends, this, this is the wonderful news of the gospel. That Christ doesn't just save us and leave us as we are, but Christ saves us. And then He transforms us. He makes us more and more like Him. The change that we so long for, but we often fail to have because it doesn't last, Christ gives us. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. You know, the, you, you, we need to understand this. The, the gospel doesn't come to us like a self-help plan. Right? The, the gospel doesn't come and say, great, you know, go embark on this 10-step process for change. No. Friends, the, the gospel is not religious self-improvement. The gospel offers us true hope for change and the hope for change is not methods, it's not techniques, it's not even spiritual disciplines. The true hope for change is a person, Jesus Christ. And Paul says, when we believe into Him, we die with Him and we are raised with Him. Friends, that's the true hope for change the gospel holds out to myself and to all of us who so badly long for change but who, keeps, who seem to keep failing. 
Friends, we are sanctified by faith as well. Right? Sometimes, you know, being, being good evangelical Christians, we talk a lot about being justified by faith. And sometimes we, 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 we live as though sanctification is just all up to us. Well, that's, that's not really true. We're justified by faith, and we are also sanctified by faith. doesn't mean that we're passive, but no, it means that we trust in Jesus as He changes us to become more and more like Him. We're sanctified by faith as well. So friends, if you, if you feel stuck, right, if you're feeling, gosh, I really want change, I want to be better, but how? Have you gone to Christ? Have, have you gone down on your knees and said, Jesus, help? Jesus, help. I, I can't effect the kind of change that you want, but I know you can. In fact, I know, I know that you have. Help, help me, Lord. Help, help me to, to live in a way that truly pleases you. We can change because we have been changed, friends. This is the good news of the gospel that Paul holds out to us in Romans 6. Finally, third point, therefore, we can continue to change. Verses 11 to 14. Now, when, when you read verses 1 to 10, you notice something interesting. Verses 1 to 10 has no commands. There are no imperatives in verses 1 to 10. Verses 1 to 10 are purely descriptive. Paul is not saying, hey, you go die to sin. You go, go, go be raised in new life yourself. No, there are no commands in verses 1 to 10. These verses, verses 1 to 10, simply describe what has happened to us through the gospel, through conversion. They don't call us to do, but they call us to know. Not to do, but to know. To, to know who we are in Christ, to know how He has changed us. You know, if you look at these verses, you notice how the word know is used quite, quite a number of times in these verses. You know, we know, we know that this has happened, we, we know that this is true, right? Know, know these things. Why, why is knowing so important? Because we so often forget, friends. We, we live in a fallen world that tells us many, many different things about ourselves. So one of the things that we suffer from is identity amnesia. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget what we are in Him. We forget what we have in Him. Therefore, the first command in this passage is in verse 11. And it's not, it's not so much a command to, to do something, but as, as it is a command to actually know something. Right? Paul says, So, verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Imagine you have, imagine you have inherited a massive, massive fortune. Right? All the wealth that, that, you can even that you can ever imagine. Imagine you've, you've inherited this vast fortune, but you don't know about it. Right? You have this vast fortune, this amazing inheritance, but you're ignorant of it at, at totally, so you don't know anything about it. So how would you live? Right? You probably wouldn't live as someone who has this vast fortune. No, you, life goes on as usual, right? Because you don't know anything about this inheritance. All that wealth is useless because we're not actually drawing from it, right? We don't know about it. We're not benefiting from all that wealth. 
So in the same way, friends, if, if we don't consider that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, all that amazing riches of our inheritance in Christ is useless. It's useless. We, we continue living life as, as, as usual because we don't know that we have this amazing riches in Christ. What's the use of that inheritance if we don't know about it? If we're not drawing from it? God wants us to know how much we have in the gospel. Why? So that we don't live in spiritual poverty. Friends, we don't have to live in spiritual poverty. We don't have to. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, the, the word consider is an interesting word. It's, it's actually a, an accounting term. It means literally to count, right? Count. Count the riches of our inheritance in Christ. And it's in present tense. Keep counting. Keep considering the riches that you have in Christ. Keep calling to mind what you have in Him. Don't lose sight of who you are in Christ. Don't lose sight of all that you have in Him. Don't lose sight of who He's made you to be in Him. And, and friends, this, this is where the church community is so important. Right? Because when it comes to identity, community is vital in shaping identity. I think, I think we know this, right? That's why we're in families. Families shape identity. Marriage relationships shape identity. Friendships shape identity. Identity is not shaped on our own, but identity is shaped in community. So we need one another, living in community with one another, to shape this identity that we have in Christ. In concrete ways, it just means I need you to remind me of who I am in Christ. You need me to remind you of who you are in Christ because we forget. Because we experience circumstances in life that make us forget again and again. So we need one another to remind one another again and again, hey, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to live that way because Christ has done this amazing thing for you. You don't have to keep giving yourself to that because Christ has saved you from that. He's given you this new life. He's, he's, he's enabled you to live this new life. Your, your marriage doesn't have to be that way. You can speak to your wife differently because Christ has raised you in newness of life. You, you can forgive that person even though it's really hard because Christ has empowered you by His grace to live a new life. Friends, this is what it means to, to shape our identity in community as we speak the truth in love to one another. The reason why we don't change the reason why we don't grow is because we have lost sight of who we are in Christ. When we forget our identity, what happens? We get complacent. Right? We begin to tolerate sin in our life. We, we, we have a truce with sin. We allow it to squat in our lives. We become comfortable with the status quo as we stop growing spiritually. We forget who we are. When we forget who we are, we get discouraged. We, we try to change in our own strength, and then we fail, and then we give up. When we forget who we are, we, we become bitter 
Right? We, we stop trying to change, so we start blaming our circumstances. We start blaming the people around us for treating us so badly. We start blaming this or that. You know, our, our hearts become bitter and hardened. We get jaded, right? We, we, we forget who we are, we get jaded, we get disillusioned, we just say, ah, that's the way things are. That's the way the church is, that's the way the people are. So we just lose heart, we get jaded. But friends, Romans 6 says we can expect more and we should expect more. We, we should expect more of ourselves. We should expect more of one another. And not in a legalistic way, but in a way that recognizes that God's transforming power is at work in us. Shouldn't we expect more? Shouldn't we expect this community to be a resurrected community? A place where the resurrection power of Christ is on display in our very lives. Shouldn't we expect more? Paul goes on to say, verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign. Sin is not our master anymore. So stop listening to it. Don't, don't live as though sin is in charge. Right? Don't tolerate sin in our lives. Fight it. Don't blame shift. Right? Don't blame other people or other things for sin. But take responsibility. Turn away from it. Don't live under the influence of this world's values and ways. Sin is no longer in charge. Don't delay confession and repentance because sin is no longer in charge. Therefore, do not offer our bodies to serve sin. Don't offer our members as instruments for unrighteousness. Right? The, the word instrument is, is, can also be translated weapon. Right? Don't don't, use, don't let sin use our bodies as weapons to fight for sin. Someone who still lives in sin will fight for sin, will side with sin against God. But if we have died to sin, we will side with God against our sin. Whose side are we on? So Paul says we are to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Our members literally means our different body parts. Use our different body parts for the sake of God's righteousness. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a song that my three-year-old nephew was singing recently when we were on holiday with him. You know, you may have heard it. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little heart, whom you trust. Be careful, little mind, what you think. Right? That, that's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 6. Offer up our members, our different body parts, our different faculties, our different abilities. Offer all of them for the sake of Christ and His righteousness. Right? So if you look at your ministry guide, I, I put, some, put in some reflection questions for us to think about all the different body parts, right? How do we use them? How do we use our eyes? What do we look at? How do we use our ears? What do I listen to? How do I use my tongue? What do I say? How do I use my hands? What am I doing with my hands and my feet? Where am I going? How do I use my heart? What do I really treasure and desire? What do I really want? 
How do I use my mind? What am I thinking about? Friends, if we are in Christ, then we have life after death. Sin will have no dominion over us because we are not under law, but under grace. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel as well. We're saved by faith alone. We're sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ because of what he's done. God is our king. We're not under law because the law was unable to free us from sin's guilt and power. But God, by his grace, has done what the law could never do for us. God has changed us by his grace in Jesus Christ. Friends, now he calls us. Because he's changed us on the inside, now he calls us to live for him, to give ourselves completely to him as those who have died and have been raised with Christ in new life. Friends, will we do that? Will we give ourselves entirely to Jesus in this way? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you and praise you for the gospel. Father, we thank you for how your gospel changes us on the inside, for how you've given us new hearts, you've given us a new identity in Christ. Indeed, we have died with him and we've been raised with him in new life. Oh, Father, we pray because of this, we pray that you would help us to stop making excuses. Help us to stop rationalizing our sin Help us to stop tolerating our own sin. Father, oftentimes we, we excuse ourselves. We say, oh, that's just the way I am. That's my personality. Or because of this circumstance or that person. Father, we, we, we try to explain away our sin. Oh, Father, help us to stop that. Help us to know and to consider who we are. To know that you have raised us from the dead. You have given us new life. Help us, therefore, to live out of the new life that you have so graciously given to us. Father, in this time of quiet, we, we ask that you would examine our hearts. Help us to consider how we have been living and using our bodies, every single part of our body. Have we been honouring to you? Have we glorified you in every way? And Father, if... If need be, we, we pray that you would convict us of sin. We pray that you would show us how we have strayed away from you, how we have forgotten our identity. We pray that you would, by your grace, turn us back to you. Have mercy on us, we pray. Father, we pray for ourselves as a church as well. We pray that this church will be a place where your resurrection life is fully on display. We, we pray that you help us to look to you for hope, knowing that you are the one who transforms us. And therefore, we can live differently. We can treat one another differently. We can love one another differently. We can speak to one another differently simply because of what you have done for us. So help us to expect more of you to, and, and in so doing, to also expect more of one another. Father, we do pray that you would have mercy on us, be gracious to us, complete the work that you have begun in us 
that we would glorify you and be a holy bride, glorious, unbelievable.